Rounding up our podcast this week, we boldly go where no podcast has gone before and talk to Jeff Nichols, director of Take Shelter and this week's Excellent Mud. We also set our phasers to review and tackle a reluctant fundamentalist and deadfall. And I'm sure all these Star Trek references mean something. What could it be? Oh yes, we talk Star Trek in the darkness with writers and producers Damon Lindelof, Bob Orsi, Alex Kurtzman and Brian Burke. There's Klingons in the starboard bow. Starboard bow. Starboard bow, Jim. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that prefers Romulan L Zero. All the great taste of Romulan L Zero calories. As ever, I'm joined by my very own Enterprise crew. I call them my number twos. And they are... She's ice cold, deadly, and resistance is futile. She's our very own Borg queen, (laughs) Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello. I'm I'm trying to decide whether to be grateful that you didn't describe me as Deanna Troy, given I have large hair. (laughs) <laughs> or Kieran Norris, given that I wear large earrings. I don't know the second one. Who's okay, that? that? Who's was, that? Uh, that was a Deep Space Nine reference. Uh, Try okay. to keep up, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I, I stopped watching after Deep Space Seven. He's the ship's resident art house guru who can constantly be found on a holodeck, perfectly recreating the Curzon Soho for screenings of that old Klingon favourite. Stop or Mike. Ah, Will blech, blech. <laughs> it's Phil Desemlian. That was really funny. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Finally, it's, it's a year in. <laughs> got there at last. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure he was pronouncing his Klingon correctly. No, he's <laughs> giving me his music. How do you pronounce your surname, by the way? It's good. It's not bad. It's, that's the, uh, the ancient Klingon. I actually that looked was up, Jeddak, actually. I looked, or was it Jeddak? Yes. Jeddak. Jeddak. I looked up the... Uh, I tried to look up the, uh, the Klingon for mom, uh, stop and shoot and apparently <laughs> according to the Klingon translators I found online there are no such words there's no word Klingon. for shoot in Klingon I know and there's no word for stop which explains a lot and there's no word for, for mom so that maybe that explains a lot as well Klingons don't have mothers mommy issues no. they, they have to they, no. they don't just hatch no they're just they're you know they're tough they don't have mummies where do Klingons live Canary Wharf <clears throat> Last but not least, <laughs> it's it's all gone. That one joke we had is now we, it's all been invalidated by. I have yet to go to Comic Con, but when you go, do you encounter? Do you, do you make jokes like that? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, meet people talking Klingon. I've never actually heard anyone I, in real I, life. Uh, I saw a Klingon wedding. My very first Comic Con years and years and years ago. Jeff Goldsmith, who uh, writes for this magazine occasionally and is also the uh, proprietor and publisher and driving force behind the excellent backstory, which is a magazine you can find on the iPad, uh, all about screenwriting. It's very, very good. Check it out. He brought me to Comic Con. He took me under his wing, my very first Comic Con, and took me to a Klingon wedding, which was like the weirdest thing. I'm just sitting there going, I don't know what's happening. I'd like to leave now if I can. But you can't leave because can you imagine a drunk Klingon uncle? That's amazing. Just, yeah. So when they when it comes to the bit where someone goes, does any anyone see any reason why these two shouldn't be joined in holy wedlock? The hand goes up and it's like the Borg at the back. <laughs> What's your issue? No, that, then someone cuts off the hand with a batleth. Uh-huh. Who could tell if, an, if a Klingon was objecting? That could be that could be a good thing. That could, could be, be a, congratulations. Could be. Well, I'm so happy for you. You may now decapitate the bride. Don't do that. That would be terrible. There is no Klingon um, word for happy. There's no. I don't think there's a Klingon word at all. That translator was terrible. Anyway. Ali's sitting there waiting for his introduction. Uh, can you believe we won an award this week? This is the most haphazard beginning to it. <laughs> we won an award this week uh, for being awesome. I think it was at the at the Bauer Awards, uh, our own internal award. So we basically gave ourselves an award. But anyway, it all counts. Uh, anyway, so last but not least is our very own Wesley Crusher, the terrifyingly talented teenage whiz kid who makes this whole thing possible. Well, as Kirk once told Scotty Helen, I think you'll agree with this. Uh-huh. Do not be so proud of this technological terror you constructed. Its power is insignificant next to the power of the Force. It's it's Ali Plum. Hi. 
Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. Excellent. Right, moving on. Every week we ask you a lot for questions and comments. Every week you oblige. Every week we have to take out the swearing, the rude bits, and the death threats. And once we've stopped crying, this is what we're left with. The first question is from at Jean underscore Helpman, who asks, I still remember the first 18 certificate film I saw at a cinema. <laughs> Time Cop. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was an 18 <laughs> he goes on 18 for splits I don't know if it was an 18 um, 18 for splits 18 for splits <laughs> he goes on he says time cop and then he reviews it incredible in a word what was your first uh, this will date us all horribly but yeah uh, my first 18 rated movie I tried to get in to see Basic Instinct uh, at the, <laughs> I bet you did uh, oh, well, you, you know I did uh, I only went for the uh, the cop action scenes um, and uh, the uh, I went to the Centrepoint Cinema in Lurgan it was a multiplex in, in Northern Ireland a multiplex one of the first multiplexes in Northern Ireland we couldn't Ooh. believe it we couldn't believe it it was basically a man holding a TV but it was it had four sides and he would just rotate it depending on what film he wanted to watch how'd you bite that is that right <laughs> can you see there um, so uh, we tried to get in and see Basic Instinct couldn't do it we chickened out we chickened out we, we were massively underage we looked it um, I was already sweating profusely one <laughs> night and we decided not to do it and so then my first 18 properly 18 was Bram Stoker's Dracula which I saw at the IFA Cinema in Banbridge and that was not a good way to start <laughs> your 18 rated uh, extravaganzas Helen what was yours to be honest I don't remember um, I remember everyone remembers her first time no I time. genuinely don't I, it would have been at the Jet Centre in Coleraine which rather similarly to, to your experience was a dreadful cinema. It used to have the speakers were just stacked in front of the screen. They were like your dad's speakers, just sitting in front of the screen. The screens were about the size of a sofa. And uh, Are you sure you weren't just standing outside Dixon's, you guys? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Northern Ireland. On honestly, it was not good. Um, I don't. I don't know. I do remember. I do remember going to Prince of Tides because it was an eighteen and we were twelve and we thought that was really cool. Sorry, fifteen and we were twelve. Prince of Tides. Prince of Tides. You and went it to see a dreadful. Barbara Streisand. I know. Though. I know. I do remember for my eighteenth birthday, I went to see Toy Story. Um, you kind of go in this, the opposite direction. I know <laughs> just... that that didn't make a lot of sense in retrospect. You know, we should okay. have been cooler, but yeah. hey, at least that one stood the test test we, of time. We were never cool. Better than Time Cop, anyway. So you can't remember. So I can't remember. Rubbish. I'm sorry. Ali. Not better than Time Cop. Yeah. That's, you can't just make blithe throwaway criticisms of Time Cop and expect us just to let it go well, and move on to the next thing. I think I probably this can. This movie is like the best of Looper meets the best of the Bill. It's everyone... got everything, something for everyone. <laughs> is everyone aware that there is a sequel to Time Cop called Time Cop 2, The Berlin Decision? I, I did not know that. You've been, you've been working on this film this week, haven't you? Not the actual film, but... Well, I kind of... I didn't write it, but I crafted it with uh, one of our writers, uh, Owen Williams, which was direct-to-DVD sequels, or just sequels you've never heard of. Right, yeah, yeah. And this includes ones that you kind of do already know about, which is American Psycho 2, mm. uh, which does Mila Kunis and Kirk himself. The Shatters, yeah. But, yeah, there were some absolute delights in there. Marley and Me has a kind of a midquel. Oh, that's right. How it's, small it's called was the, that the Puppy Years or something, The Puppy it? Years, yeah. 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 And yeah. for no reason at all, the puppy can speak in this one. <laughs> Amazing. Sorry, what? You heard. Whilst Jennifer Aniston and what's his chop and Wilson go off for a holiday, the grandfather and a little kiddlywink play with the dog and get up to some scrapes, and the dog can talk in the film. Can I talk to the humans? Can humans understand it? It goes, hey, I don't want to drink that. Look who's talking kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. This is interesting. So basically, if somebody was too traumatised to watch Marley and Me proper, they could watch this with all the puppy goodness and none of the death. Or watch them both yeah. backwards so it's like irreversible but for and dogs. And the puppy comes back to life. The puppy comes back to life. And gets smaller and Because yeah. oh. of course the controversial end of Marley and Me where the, the dog is 
beaten to death with a fire extinguisher, which is... <laughs> If nothing else good happens today, Unusual. you have come up with the notion of an irreversible for dogs. Marley and my <laughs> anger problem. Wow. Anyway, my answer to this will make you all want to kill me. It really, really will. I'm confessing now. Okay. In a week's time, no, in three weeks' time, I'm turning 26. <laughs> which means that my first... I, I called you a teenager in my introduction. 18 rated movie that I watched legally. Was December, Marley and me. Was Marley and me, <laughs> the anger management years. No, it was... Sin City. Oh, good God. In Sin 2005. City. Why do we have him oh working God. here? It came out two days after oh my, my birthday. God. Also, I've just realised Marley in me would be a much better 18-rated oh, version of no. that. Anyway, moving on. Uh, award-winning <laughs> podcast. Um, Sin City. Think about that. The sequel is coming out next year. It's just me or people getting younger every year. What's happening? Oh, like You're it. the Ute. I don't really remember. I'm still dwelling on Time Cop. But Gene's question is a good one. I think it might have been Silence of the Lambs. Good one. That's I good, think that's it was. Shout. That would have been because I looked at it and I was like, that's, that's about when I... That gives you a clip at how old I am. But that, that was about the time, I think. And I remember seeing the Marble Arch, that big Marble Arch mm-hmm. Odeon cinema and queuing to get in. And I really felt a big buzz around that film and I was kind of bricking it going in. In case you were being thrown out or... Were, no, you I just, you know, I don't think I was a guy that tried, I don't think I tried to sneak into too many films, because I, I was a bit like you, I was a bit chicken. Well, no, I, I did it with um, Dracula, Draclier. Uh I was I was underage for that, and I uh, I kind of went, hey, yeah. Draclier, please. And, uh, hey, yeah, Draclier, please. Yeah, no, no, it was, it was, it was proper deep, was oh, it? Oh, okay, fine. Yours was then Silence of the Lambs. Did you like it? Yeah, it, yeah, I did like it. It's it was pretty good, scared the living... Well, it's just yeah. I mean, it doesn't really need me to critique at this point, but um, it was, it was a pretty blinding uh, mm. cinema experience. Uh, and if anyone else out there has any interesting first eighteen rated films, then by all means do send them in. Or NC seventeen if you live in the states. At Smithio was just one of the many people who asked us something to do with the much ballyhooed retirement of Mister Alex Ferguson, who apparently managed a football team near Runcorn. I'm mm. guessing. Mm. Um, hopefully not showing my Liverpool supporting stripes too much here. Uh, well done, Chris. Well anyway, done. he says, with the greatest football manager ever hanging up his boots this week, uh, which movie manager is the pod's favourite? Well, first of all, can I just say that the greatest football manager is Bob Paisley, and he hung up his boots a long, long time ago. But anyway, let's move on. Do you wear um, boots to football manage? Also, I don't think you do. Okay. I don't think you do. This question is wrong on many levels. Uh, but let's focus on the second part of it. Sure. Which movie manager is the pod's favourite? Now, is this football manager? Because as far as I know, there's only Mike Bassett. There's <laughs> only Mike Bassett, uh, director of Silent Hill Revelation. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. Well, obviously there are a couple of football managers. Gregory's girl, there's oh, okay. football yeah. manager in that, and goal. Uh, the guy in goal, and the guy in yeah, you know, when Saturday comes, the, that guy. We all know, we all know <laughs> that guy. God, he's indelible. I mean, um, what great footballing movies there have been, eh? Eh? John, Jonathan Rhys Myers in, in Benham like Beckham. Beckham. He is a football manager, isn't he? Cause well, he's, he's kind he, of a coachy, sexy Irish man. Yeah, and he's very creepy. I watched that actually last year, and it's. He's quite creepy. Right. I know, I was going to say, no one on this table will have forgotten our attempts to bring together the cast, the team from Escape to Victory, not yeah, that long ago. That's true. About and, was three um, years ago now? It was about three years ago, yeah. and it was a, but the scars it was a noble it. gesture, because the team has now spread to the four winds, but when they were at their peak mm. during the Second World War, um, they were led by Michael Caine's Captain John Colby. Yeah, that's right. Ham in England. He was one of the, the very first player coaches. And there's a great bit of, uh, a great exchange between him and... Um, uh, Max von Sydow where Max mm. von Sydow the German camp commandant and the guy that's orchestrated this football match between the Nazis and the Allied prisoners says uh, 
um, Captain John Colby of West Ham in England. It's a shame the war has ended your career. And Michael Caine just goes, interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, dude, you're in a prisoner of war camp. Don't get fresh. <laughs> Seriously. Um, he's, uh, he's the man for me. Big, big fan of big yeah. fan of that. but he's a player manager so I don't know if that counts that was amazing though. you've just you've just reminded me of that because we, we got the guys we, we reunited the, the footballing team because we, we decided not to reunite Sly Stallone and Pele and people like we that we decided so we, not to we went, we went for the former Ipswich players and Ossiar Diles and on, we we, uh, we actually managed to get White Hart Lane for this do you remember and uh, you're a big Spurs fan Phil it was, a, it was a big moment for you I remember you walking out the pitch and uh, booting the ball towards the goal and scoring yeah, which is more than Jermaine Defoe's done this season. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, it was it was just it was really cool. Was but on great... the day on the day of the on the on the actual day, if I remember rightly, Russell Osman did his back because we had Russell Osman, Ozzy Ardiles, John Wark, Kevin Beatty, the Beat Beatty, the Beats. Who else? We had one other guy. Um, we had. Oh, good question. Um, I Captain Football. Captain Football. Thanks, yeah. Ali. I can't remember. John Ward told this great story, didn't he, about how the year after Escape to Victory had come out, he was walking through a Glasgow shopping centre and this sort of slightly drunk-looking guy stumbled towards him and sort of looking at him and narrowed his eyes, going, oh, he's trying... And there was a glint of recognition and he went, Walkie, you escaped! <laughs> which it was a great day we, we were going to play them weren't we in a five-a-side game but yeah. I don't think we were fit enough we, we had too many they, injuries they, on our side they would have destroyed us it didn't happen ultimately because Russell Osman couldn't make it and uh, it was probably a good thing I think we dodged a bullet there uh, the Smithio that probably hasn't answered your question but I want to answer this question oh you can answer it okay. I have an answer to this question you have an answer he's not a footy manager Gordon the Bombay oh, who? from the Mighty Ducks as played <laughs> by Emilio Estevez in both The Mighty Ducks I say both in all three of The Mighty Ducks <laughs> in both three Mighty Ducks <laughs> The Mighty Ducks D2 The Mighty Ducks and D3 The Mighty Ducks is there a collective noun for the Mighty Duck trilogy yes, there is and The Mighty Ducks <laughs> so okay why he helps Joshua Jackson realise his full potential and go on to star in Dawson's Creek well if you're going to extend it like that then you're bringing in people like Pacino on any given Sunday yeah I was going to say the, the problem with it is that all of the kind of managers in movies have to have heavy backstories mm. a broken a broken Pacino, marriage Pacino on any Pacino given Sunday really is a good one no he's got broken marriage he's got a broken marriage he's got a lot of you know. he's got broken everything broken voice yeah. Yeah. John Candy in uh, Cool Runnings yeah yeah. a lot of problems that's good you don't necessarily want More them running your team than a manager I would have said oh here we go is there yeah. a difference Yes, anyway, there is this is all question. getting really sporty, okay. and I feel like you know we're underrepresenting people who hate sport right now. Okay, fair enough, Helen. Uh, let's move on then. Uh, at Think Wade bombarded us with questions about five, actually, including I quite like this one. What's the best movie scene involving pants? I've got one. Yep, Austin Powers when he destroys the fanbots with his Union Jack briefs. That's a good one. Also, How about risky business. I was going to say, who can forget the crews uh, in those tighty whities? Uh, and which screen star has the hairiest back? Robin Williams. That was a good one. Do you think? That's got to be in it. We plumped. Uh, we plumped for something that's close to our hearts. Which we've actually run a fantastic feature on. And Phil, you did this uh, very recently. What's the best pick and mix suite? Now there is a right answer to this, and I want to hear it from you guys. Otherwise, this this podcast. Should we say it all at the same time? Yeah, go on then. <laughs> oh no! Wait, it's the fifty color bottles. That's what I said. What did you say? Fizzy Cola Bottle. The blue ones or the proper ones? The proper ones. No, it's the blue ones. Well, you're wrong. 
No, because you're right, because it's quantifiable. We did a survey. It's on the website now if you want to join. It's not mm. over, but it is kind of for the purpose of this. <laughs> and the winner is the Fizzy Cola Bottle. Everyone voted for that. Uh, the blue one or the, or the, the number the, one? Yeah, it's traditional. Oh, come on. Now. Traditional. They were no, all, the, the, all the, the photographs were taken really beautifully by yeah. uh, the photographer man Marco. who says Marco. Yeah. And they're all really stylish shots. Mm. So mm. if you just want a little bit of sweet porn, mm. which sounds wrong and kind of isn't, Hmm. Take a look. Let's go around quickly. Who's what's everyone's favourite? Physical ball. Uh, yeah, physical. Yeah, the, the blue one. The blue physical ball. Wow. The oh, miniature yeah. tubes that are full of the sweet. Oh, yummy. Also it... cherries, but you didn't put them in there for some reason. Oh god, not you as well. Yeah, and you, anyone else you didn't put in there? Oh, uh, not you as well. Shrimps. We yeah. had this argument. You didn't put shrimps in there. Where were the alphabet sweets? They don't count because you can't buy them. Look, the yes, criteria you can. on. Yes, you can. On. Yeah, it does specify the criteria. Look at the website. I, I EmpireOnline.com forward slash Chris is wrong. I try not to. Okay. If it can help it. Uh, okay. <laughs> Moving on. At Dweeksy asks, what's the greatest raining scene in movie history? Ugh. Is this a question about raining the movies? I hadn't noticed. Oh, Helen. God. That was the worst line ever. I have a very big soft spot for the scene in Road to Perdition. Uh, the encounter on the dark street, mm. if you remember, between Tom Hanks and uh, I do. Paul Newman. Um uh, I would also tip the hat to uh, Spider-Man because I thought it was charming Kiss mm. in the Rain um, yep. so those are the first two that sprang to mind for me uh, admittedly a bit you know modern but hey Seven Samurai is the correct answer to this question oh okay Ooh, also right. The Matrix this is the upside down kiss and Seven Samurai correct yeah. and uh, not forgetting Blade Runner maybe I shouldn't bring this up but Wimbledon has a cool scene involving playing of tennis and in the rain oh good lord so I thought I'd just mix up Blade so you, you Runner and Seven there. Samurai. You had all the cred and then you squandered stick it. in Wimbledon. We've actually got to Wimbledon before we got to Sing in the Rain. Which is <laughs> <laughs> <just> an outrage. <laughs> I, I live to outrage you. Oh, this is bad. <laughs> Wait, is there rain in Singing in the Rain? No, just no. singing. It's just runoff. And then there is, of course, as we've already alluded to, four weddings and a funeral. Is it raining on my face? Uh, Andy McDowell says very famously. Uh, because it, is it, still it, it feels, yeah, it feels like it's raining noticed. on my face, but I haven't noticed the rain on my face. That's pretty much the line. Isn't well, it? It, yeah. it, that, you've, like you've that. managed to make it even worse, Chris. Which oh, okay. I didn't think they you delivered it better than they. Is did. it raining on my face? <laughs> I'm not sure. Let me check. It's not, not how it went. Last but not least, we have many questions about the late great Ray Harryhausen, who sadly passed away this week, aged 92. Uh, at Red Flost asks, uh, would you like to see any of his films re-released? Yes. Uh, let's tackle that, and then I guess let's talk about. Uh, what Harry Harryhausen uh, meant to us and, and meant to movies in general. I, I'd love to see his stuff back on the big screen because I think it's um, it's just fascinating to watch and it and it's kind of weirdly um, convincing in a strange way. Once you get used to that stop motion effect, it, it almost seems more real than a lot of you know mm. modern CG and stuff, which I, I kind of love. Uh, so yeah, that would be I would love that. I mean, Jason and the Argonauts especially, yeah. obviously, which I think is some of his best work. But I've never seen that film on the big screen. I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to see exactly. that. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that when he died, uh, everyone talks about these movies as Ray Harryhausen films. And of course, he didn't direct them. No. Mm. And it's so weird. I mean, I don't, I can't think of another special effects guy, no matter how good they are, whether it's a Rick Baker or a Stan Winston or Rob Bottin, Phil Tippett, whoever it is, you know, the great hands-on guys of the 70s and 80s, and even going these days, you know, K&B with you know, Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger, people like that. You don't look at the uh, at American Werewolf in London and say that's a Rick Baker movie. It's mm. a John Landis film. It's it's such a it's so weird, but it's also it says so much about the indelible impact that Ray Harryhausen had on his movies and on movie makers. So you can't really say much more than that. Yeah, that's yeah. the greatest tribute to the man that they could work. be. I think. 
Although also slightly ashamed for the directors who probably deserve some credit as well. It is a little, but uh, honestly, yes. without looking up uh, on the IMDb, I couldn't name a single director of uh, of Ray Harryhausen film, which is probably uh, not even Clash of the Titans. Who directed Clash of the Titans? Please help me. I'm really drawing a blank here. Somebody we should probably know. We should probably know. <laughs> it's probably Spielberg, isn't it? It's probably <laughs> Martin Scorsese's Clash of the Titans, of course. Um, let me look at that up while you guys talk amongst yourselves. I also went to a Ray Harryhausen ex- exhibition last year at the um, Film Museum. What do you call There's a movie, Movium. 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 The Movium uh, yes. in London. And, uh, and it was fascinating. I mean, some of them he actually used uh, animals. So he actually found it easier to, you know, use bits of squirrel. Uh, for a squirrel yes. than to try and make one um, so yeah, actually really fascinating when you get up close to those to those models and kind of get a really good look at them they're, they're absolutely beautiful things um, even though a few of them have you know become a bit worn Not down good. over the years yeah. but still absolutely gorgeous Owen Williams uh, of this parish uh, actually visited Ray at his house last year for a lovely piece is up on the website at the moment uh, where Ray picked out his favourite movie monsters over the years the ones he was responsible for and uh, apparently the house was just amazing uh, a virtual museum in already itself, yeah. yeah in itself so uh, he didn't really have favourites though did he I, I went to see him um, when his film when the documentary about him came out in Notting Hill um, last year and John Landis was there and Nick Park and you know their contributions in the film from people like James Cameron and Steven Spielberg and uh, Peter Jackson all George talking about Lucas his influence Spielberg, George yeah. Lucas yeah showing what impact he's had and somebody asked him about his favourite and he was just like there was like trying to pick your favourite child I mean I think he had uh, he obviously loved the sort of cyclops and um, the skeletons the skeletons I mean you talk about the fact that he's remembered for those films Jason the Argonauts but that was a three months of work mm. and, and that was a big block of the and movie he, that everyone remembers that he choreographed that he did it himself he directed effectively yeah. so he did kind of make that mini movie in the film and that's still for me like one of the it's got to be one of the greatest of all cinema action sequences definitely and his characters were in some of his films a lot more convincing than the human cast so you know yes interesting enough uh, I found some of the director's names apologies for not knowing these but uh, Don Chaffee directed Chase and the Argonauts that we all know uh, Don Chaffee and uh, Desmond Davis directed Clash of the Titans so it just goes to show I mean obviously they weren't household names uh, no, as, as you would expect but it's, it's interesting that they you know they, they get overshadowed so much by a special effects guy but when you look at this guy's work you know Chasing the Argonauts for me was one of my favourite films as a kid and it's uh, it's 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 very very sad that he's gone but we should also celebrate his life he had a very very good innings as they say and uh, leaves behind uh, a great legacy and how many people on Twitter? How many how many filmmakers on Twitter and film critics on Twitter when he when he passed away were saying things like, "I only became a filmmaker because he fired my imagination as a child." It's quite extraordinary. Okay, so that's um, a tribute to the late great Ray Harryhausen who passed away this week, age ninety two. And if you want to get in touch uh, with the Empire Podcast, uh, vent your spleen on anything at all, ask us questions, get in touch via the usual methods. Uh, we're on Twitter at Empire Magazine. You can hashtag us at Empire Podcast and makes sure that we will see the tweet uh, you can Facebook us we're Empire Magazine on Facebook and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com okay first interview of the week now Jeff Nichols is a director who's rising sharply he made many people sit up and take notice with last year's stunning indie drama Take Shelter he's about to reunite with the star of that movie Michael Shannon in a science fiction movie which has just been announced and now he's back 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 with Mud in which two young boys form a bond with Matthew McConaughey's escaped convict he came in to talk to Phil and Dan Jolin Thank you very much for joining us, Jeff. Well, thanks much for having me. It. I'm glad to be here. The first thing I wanted to, to ask you, um, a very serious question, 
is uh, Matthew McConaughey in this film wears <clears throat> the same shirt throughout. <laughs> was he starting to smell a bit fresh by the end of uh, end of the shoot? I think he showed up smelling. I, I, I think he, <laughs> he enjoys that state of being. Um, yeah, he um, he was pretty ripe by the end of it. You know, he took it pretty seriously. When, um, when he showed up, we'd already shot uh, a few weeks on the film, and I'd never worked with him before. So you're still trying to figure out what, you know, what's this really going to be like? And um, someone came up to me and whispered in my ear the day that he arrived, that Matthew, um, he's asked for a tent. He wants to go to the island and just sleep for a few days, uh, for a few nights on the island. Um, and I just kind of was like, yes, we got the right guy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and he did. He just jumped in. And, and uh, yeah, he didn't mind smelling ripe or, or looking kind of scraggly. He, he did it all. I have to say, well done for, for actually... Uh coming up with a plot point almost that, that gets him to keep his shirt on for most of the movie. For the majority of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, I, we didn't cut much out, um, but but this one monologue that we cut out actually explains the scene where he takes his shirt off. It explains why he does it, hmm. and I took it out um, just because we needed to pace the film a little bit better. Um, but, but, yeah... And, I don't know. I wasn't thinking about most of those things when I was writing it. <laughs> no, for sure. Well, you were writing it, or you at least with the Genesis back when you were at college. It's yeah. been sort of on the on the boil for you for a long time. And in the interim, yeah. you've made obviously two movies, right. both you know very well received. What's your relationship with the material when you have this story that's obviously very personal, and you needed to wait till you could get the right scale and the right budget right. in place? Right. How do you kind of? Is it just sort of something in your top drawer waiting to come out, or? Is it no. always in your in your thoughts? It was kind of always in my mind, and, and it was something we were always building toward. It's tricky because when you have one that's kind of... It's not that it's my favorite. I'm really proud of the other two films, obviously. Um, but when you have something you've carried uh, so long with you, um, you're worried that it's going to be really terrible. Um, you know, you always hear about filmmakers finally getting to make their passion project, and it, and it was <laughs> totally sucking. Um, and so there, there was a little bit of trepidation there, but... I've been really lucky, actually, um, with these films. It's almost like I've made them with blinders on. Um, I haven't really thought about success or potential success. It's just I developed these stories before um, anyone knew my name or, or expected anything from me or wanted anything from me. So I was able to make these films in a very pure state, I feel like. So if you like them or dislike them, you know, um, obviously that's your prerogative, but it they certainly were made from an honest place. They, I wasn't trying to figure you guys out or figure the audience out. It's just really something Not. I felt like was um, was worth making. So, I mean, one thing I love about Mud, uh, I like the way that it's it's almost supernatural, mm. even though it's not a supernatural story in any sure. way. You know, I, I like this idea that that Mud could be immortal. Right. Almost, you know, he's almost this spirit uh, yeah. in a way. I mean, it was was that part of of the creative process for you to, to achieve that or is that just a, an unintended outcome no I, I think that was part of it I mean uh, I was struck by this idea of a man hiding out on an island in the middle of the Mississippi River mm. and as soon as you decide that you're going to attach a story to the Mississippi River I feel like you also attach yourself to its kind of myth yeah um, and to have a character that that literally springs out of the river and, and springs out of the woods around it um, it felt like he need he needed to be more myth than man yeah. and um, I'm a big believer, though, in each of my films is uh, building a belief system for each of my characters. You yeah. know, Mike Shannon had one in Shotgun Stories. He certainly had it in Take Shelter. And the belief system for Mud um, is one born of superstition um, and folklore. And so it it makes sense that he believes in 
uh, and such things. And, you know, he has crosses in his boot heels to ward off evil spirits and a mm. wolf sign sewn into the you know sleeve of his shirt. He believes these things. So it makes sense that if he believes in these superstitions that he would he would represent them as well. Um, you know, I'm really, really fascinated by when I'm watching your your three movies, how, how much of them spill out of your childhood. And mm-hmm. um, you work with your brother, obviously, does yeah. this, the, the music for your films. And uh, so obviously creative family and, and, and coming from this part of the world that movies don't visit that often, I suppose. Arkansas, right. Mississippi, the borders there. Can right. you talk a little bit about, about your kind of um, formative influences in terms of maybe the, the literary side of it as well? Yeah, it's funny. Um, certainly for this film, I thought more about books than I did about movies. I always pull up a few film references if I need to. But this, this one was born out of literature. Uh, Obviously, reading a ton of Mark Twain, who I think is one of our greatest writers, um, I I felt like he was able to encapsulate childhood in a in a really great way. When you read Tom Sawyer, you feel like what it was like to be a child—not just a child in that era, um, but just a child in general. And I wanted to update that. I wanted to see what a modern um, kid's experience would be like on the Mississippi River. So. You know, literature was a was a big part of it for me. Of course, growing up, um, kind of somewhat separate from mud, you know, I just grew up in the suburbs of, of Little Rock, and and I went to the multiplexes, and I grew up on Spielberg. I grew up on you know whatever was whatever was showing that weekend. And although I didn't you know consciously sit down to to chart out um, parallels to to any of Spielberg's films, I mean, I think there's an essence in this that even in production we talked about this kind of feeling like an Amblin film, you know, just because those were the kinds of films that, that were about kids, um, Goonies, E.T., mm. that kind of thing that I grew up on, and, and I wanted this to have a similar kind of magic to it, I suppose. Mm. Ellis is very romantic, isn't he? Uh, so, so say Ellis is the, the main, kind of the main character. Yeah, boy. it's all through his point of view. Uh, and, and, and Phil and I were talking about this just before before you arrived, you know, about he's almost kind of like a knight of old in a, in a way in this story, you know, this very has these very idealized notions of, of romance that right. you know his father's lost. Um, and uh, what what really struck me was was just the performance from Ty Sheridan and and from Jacob Lofland, I think, as yeah, well. Those great. two kids. I mean, where did you find them? You know, these old these these old heads on these young shoulders. I know. I I feel like you know the universe just kind of delivered them to me, honestly. Right. Um, and and if you if you think about it too hard you get really scared because if without them in the picture it it um it totally falls apart Mm. and so you can't really think about what you would have done if but you know ty fell in my lap sarah green my producer also produced the tree of life and he's the youngest boy uh, youngest brother in the tree of life and that film hadn't come out yet Mm. but sarah said you really need to meet ty he's about the right age i think he would be really good for this role i asked jessica chastain about him and and she was like ah he's great he's wonderful um, and I walked in and met him, uh, and he just looked exactly like the character I wrote on the page. Mm-hmm. And beyond just physically, I mean, he sounded like him. You know, he's from East Texas. He's from a, a really small town. Uh, he knows how to ride a dirt bike and, and drive a boat and everything else. <laughs> but also behavior-wise, he's um, he's very quiet. He's not shy. Uh, he's quiet, which there's a difference. And um, and he's observant. He, he, he observes the people around him, and that's exactly what I needed out of Ellis. You know, Ellis is looking up to all the adults around him to find an example of love that works. And, of course, all the adults are failing him. And, <laughs> uh, and, and Ty seemed appropriate for that. Similar with Jacob, who plays Neckbone, um, kind of the sidekick buddy. Um, we just put an ad in the paper, 
uh, that described him. We described him as a bit of a smartass. And uh, his mom read it and just said, that sounds like my son. And uh, she was right. I mean, um, it helps that when his mouth's closed, he looks like a young river phoenix. Yeah. And when it's open, yeah. it's just something different altogether, which, uh, <laughs> which is great. They just, they came to me. Um, it's like they just came to me. So can you tell us anything about, is it Midnight Special? Is this what you're doing Midnight next? Special, that's the name of it. Is that with, with Michael Shannon, yeah? Um, hopefully he'll be in there, yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, I'm just finishing writing it now, so we're, we're starting the casting process, starting to talk about what possibilities um, could be out there. But, you know, I write things for people, and there's mm. a part in there for them. Okay. Yeah. B yeah. Bigger than in mud? Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay. And yeah. it's science fiction? This is what I'm reading. Uh -huh. I call it sci-fi, but it's not really. It's um because it's present day, you know. So whenever mm. you say sci-fi, people think the future, but it's not. Not it's mm. a it's a it's a present day tale. But um but there's some kind of supernatural elements that are that are um not fantasy. They're more like sci-fi, I suppose. Okay. So you mentioned John Carpenter as a as a touchstone for it. Yeah. Are there any literary touchstones? Um, for this one. Yeah. That's interesting, you know, because there were so many literary influences on Mud. This one really is about movies um, in terms of inspirations. I, I was really thinking about Starman by John Carpenter, thinking about Close mm -hmm. Encounters. Um, you know, I'm trying to think any literary influences for this one. They don't spring to mind, to be honest, which may mean it's going to be a terrible disaster. But, um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I really wanted to make a, a certain kind of movie. It's, it's, a, it's like a sub-genre movie. Um, it's like a chase film. And um, but like all my other films, you know, I, I want to try and subvert the genre as much as I can. You know, I like working in genre. I think I think each of my films has been a genre film um, that you just dismantle. Hmm. And um, and I've tried to do the same thing here um, and not put the focus on on the genre elements, but the focus on the characters and and whatever um, deep, deep emotion I'm feeling at the time. And this hmm. one certainly has one. Um, so you're looking forward to Man of Steel? I can't wait, you know. I can't wait. Uh, I, I'm not a Superman fan, um, mm. but it seems like their take is is a thoughtful one and is a like a, I dare say, human one. Mm. Um, and and I'm interested to see their take on it. And of course, I'll watch anything with Mike in it. Yeah, nice seeing the other end of the apocalypse this time. <laughs> yeah, right. he's causing it now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you shared him on on Take Shelter with with uh, Man of Steel, didn't you? In terms no, of on Mud. Oh, sorry, uh, on Mud. Yeah, yes, on yes. Mud, yeah. It was funny. Um, we had him for two days, and uh, all the producers and executive producers showed up that day because apparently um, the way the insurance worked, had we hurt him or had he something bad happened to him, we would have had to pay for Superman, um, which we obviously <laughs> oh, couldn't, couldn't afford. Oh. And cut to me, you know, putting this homemade diving helmet on his head and, and yelling at him, that, go Go deeper. Go under the water. Further, further. Um, and With all those snakes. <laughs> and the producers are just sweating bullets on the side. <laughs> but he came back up. We made it work. He didn't die. <laughs> no. So is, that, is the part he plays in Mud, it's just a very small part, but I like to think that that's closer to him in how he really is than anything else he's played. Uh, he would disagree with that, but I, I wrote it for him. I, I just think he's funny. You know, yeah. I think he's a really funny guy, and, and he's funny in this film um, in a unique peculiar kind of way and um anybody that intelligent is bound to have a good wit hmm. and and he does you know i remember uh when we when i finished directing shotgun stories i took him to the airport and uh he looked at me and the last thing he said before he got out of the car was well nichols at least we know you can write <laughs> and uh and he got on the plane and that's kind of 
that's hilarious. <laughs> you know? Although I think he meant it. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, he just gets you. Like, he'll get you, and, and it takes you a few days to catch up with him. I, I just I had a very specific question about Take Shelter. We talked to, um, <clears throat> we talked to Mike about um, the orange rain. Yeah. And he, he was guess, guesstimating what was in it. Right. He said he thought it might be Vaseline and Kool-Aid. I don't know. They were mixing up. We did lots of tests, you know, off to the side. We just had a guy with a big container and he kept mixing up things and it had to be the right consistency because it needed to, you know, it needed to fall and, and, and it couldn't be too thick. It couldn't be too watery. Um, and, and then the color had to read as well. Um, it was gross though. Mm -hmm. It was really gross. It looked nasty. Yeah. There was oil. There was, uh, I don't know what all they put in it. Um, I don't remember it having a particular smell, but, um, just the substance of it was really, really sick, and 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 I know we covered Mike in it, in several scenes, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That it's funny. Have you ever seen this Peter Weir film, The Last Wave? No, actually, um, I've got to confess, I probably shouldn't. But, no, you know, well, no, I love no. I love I love Peter Weir's work. But I that's do one too. Of the ones I, I hadn't I've, seen uh, it as well, and we had this yeah. um, this young girl was was um, in our wardrobe department, and we're making the movie and she goes you know this is like this movie i saw on tv when i was a kid um it's there's this dark rain falling from the sky and and it's about the apocalypse and it ends with a big wave and um and i said oh dear god uh <laughs> do you remember who made it she was like as an australian peter peter i was like peter weir <laughs> and uh she's like yeah that's it and i was like oh this is the end of my life uh, i'm remaking a peter weir film and i didn't even know it i'm a i'm terribly terribly stupid and um <laughs> Luckily, and I didn't let myself watch it until after, uh, after I'd made the film, and they don't have anything in common except for the fact that there's black yeah. rain and, and it ends with a wave. So, yeah. <laughs> talk, talking about ends of the world, is it true that you were you were on Fox's shortlist for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? I guess maybe they talked about me. I yeah, didn't talk about your name came up. Um, no, you know, my agent called me and, and said, "Hey, uh, do you want to?" The the way agents are funny. The way he phrased it, he said. Do you want to agree to be considered to possibly get the job? Wow! And uh, and I said no, um, no, thank you. And uh, and he said, Jeff, you need to sleep on this one. Um, the, you can make so much money. Um, you this could you know be life changing, not just career changes. Be life changing, Jeff. It's going to make three hundred million dollars. Okay, I'll sleep on it. So I slept on it, and I woke up, and I called him back the next day, and I said, Nah. I just, you know, I've got these other things I'm doing right now. I'm just, it's not going to happen. And um, and a week later, you know, it hit the trades that I was, you know, on this list. And it was it was kind of funny. Um, but uh, it's very flattering to be yeah. on that list. I want to be on that list. I want to stay on that list because um, I would really like it to be my decision to possibly not be considered for a movie <laughs> rather than their decision. So, um, so yeah, it's flattering. Um, just wasn't what I was looking to do right now, you know. Mm. So is this, so is this the you know the lure of the studio is it, that is something you're resisting is this is that it or I guess you know um, I you know I think there's a, a very short list of filmmakers that get to make their own stuff hmm. um, and right now I happen to be able to I think get my own stuff funded and as long as that happens and as long as I have a story um, I'll probably prioritize that yeah um, but you know life's crazy and, and this isn't just a a love for me this isn't just a, a, a craft or an art um, hmm. it's my livelihood so um, I fully reserve the right to sell out at any time <laughs> uh, 
um, if I need to. Uh, I, I will sell out, um, and uh, and then I will put an in-ground pool uh, behind my house and swim in it and be quite happy. Um, but but maybe I can do both. Can't say fairer than that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jeff, it's been a real pleasure. We're looking forward to speaking to you about Midnight Special. And uh, Mud is out in the UK on May the 10th. All right, thanks, guys. Okay, movie news time. Uh, what have you got for me today, people? Luke Evans. Where? Where? Is the crow. Ooh. Ali, let's expand on that, shall we? Yes. Oh. There have been rumours about who could play the crow in the remake of The Crow. And at one point it was Bradley Cooper, Cooper. back mm-hmm. in the day. He was earmarked for it. There was even some quite weird concept art that was circling around. He was wearing a top hat. He was quite zombie-like and we're all I think it's safe to say quite glad that didn't happen uh, then Tom Hiddleston was earmarked I don't think that was ever really anything that was a rumour more than anything else and Luke Evans mm-hmm. of soon to be Hobbit fame if that makes any sense uh, he's yep. in the well, next and Hobbit Fast and Furious yeah. and now Fast and Furious mm-hmm. 6 is The Crow um, I spoke to him recently uh, for the Fast and Furious junket and we spoke about it and he like myself agrees like obviously he agrees but I think personally The Crow isn't a movie that people should get too upset about being remade. I understand why they might, but for me it feels like a film that could be delivered in our modern age with a new take and in an interesting fashion. And I enjoy Luke Evans on screen. He's always, you know, does good stuff. So I'm quite excited about this. He's on board. He will be applying his corpus paint at some point in the future. I think it's a good one. You think? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I, I quite just, like him. I think I've said this to podcast before. I don't know The Crow. I don't like the movie. I'm not that bothered. It's quite, it's quite atmospheric, isn't it? And I think it's, uh, it's the kind of thing where there are a few, you know, beats you need to hit, and the rest of it you can kind of, you know, riff on and kind of play by ear and do a different thing with. So, hey, this could be good. He looks like a rock star, you know. Yeah. Hey. Okay. Or is he going to fit this in because he's, uh, he's, he's Dracula, isn't he? In yeah. A, in a new version of of Dracula, which is coming out. <laughs> I can't stop saying like that. Draculeer. Uh which is coming out at the uh, in next year, isn't it? Dominic Cooper's just signed on to star in that. That's a kind of reboot of of Dracula, uh, which was originally Alex Prius's Hey, who tried to the crow? <gasps> oh, it all comes full circle. Yeah, it's all, it all means something. It's all linked circle of life. Hakuna Matata. Um, so Alex Prius was going to direct Dracula Year Zero with Sam Worthington, and then that's now turned into this big Dracula trilogy thing with him as a tragic anti-hero. Which I'm a little bit. Well, the whole Vlad um, thing is mm-hmm. is kind of interesting because you know you can you can make that case. There is there is a backstory to that historical figure, which is quite tragic. Yeah. And Are you saying that it's going to be like Breaking Vlad? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I think they should change the name immediately. I'm in. One other thing I'd like to mention, uh, which is Jurassic Park Four. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Jurassic Park Luke Four. Evans. He's going to be playing the park. Yeah, uh, Colin Trevorrow from Safety. Not guaranteed. Not guaranteed. guaranteed yeah. Who we interviewed in a previous podcast. We did. Was given that gig. He was. Jurassic Park 4. Uh, there was a hard release date, though, on it, uh, which was, let me get this straight, June 2014, which eagle eyed people with brains will know is next year, around about the June time. And <laughs> considering they'd only just started releasing little tidbits about Isla Nublar, I always feel stupid saying Isla that. Fisher. <laughs> Good. They'd only just done scouting photographs and that come out recently and people were excited about it. There was a kind of a small kind of annoying buzz in the back of the room about it. And then suddenly it's all not necessarily fallen apart, but pushed back, pushed back yeah. without a specific time. There have been some tweets from crew members saying things 
that maybe could be libelous, but we'll we'll see. Um, saying that they've had their hopes crushed, dreams slaughtered type stuff. Oh my god! About the production on this film. So let's put a question mark over this. I would say ever actually happening. It sounds like things are difficult in this camp. So someone said to Colin Trevorrow, after much consideration, I've decided not to endorse your film. Oh, well done. That was a quote. You see, that was a misquote from the first. Anyway. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that this is a good thing. I think it is better for for studios to be willing to blink on a release date and work on getting a film right than it is for them to rush to a yeah. long-established release date, which was established before they had a director, and um, and try and get it right. I mean, we were kind of we've we've in the past celebrated J.J. Uh, Abrams in this podcast for not immediately committing himself to the planned 2015 date for Star Wars Episode Seven. And and it's the same thing here. Surely it's a good thing if they take that extra three months to work on the script and make yeah, sure it's good. I think so. I I just wonder what's what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, it mm. it seems strange that Colin Trevorrow would uh, would tweet that picture of the location scouting on uh, wherever it is that they where was it? it was Hawaii, Costa, I think. Costa Rica, Hawaii, where yeah. yeah. And uh, and then a few days later, the project gets put on hold. So was he trying to put pressure on studio suits to pony up and say, okay, yeah, okay, if they're location scouting maybe we should actually make this film now or maybe he was in a strange way trying to get him to push it back so he has a bit more time going look we're only at the location scouting stage guys what are we doing so maybe maybe it works both ways bear in mind they're still yet to cast and they're still tweaking the script there was an original script by Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver and this is being tweaked by Trevor himself and his regular co-writer Derek Connolly so there's still lots to do Mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I think it's a good thing pushing this back. For me, I never yeah. expected it to come out next year. It's, I honestly never thought it would. It's so weird now we have this culture where you have a release date and you back into the mm. release date no matter what. And sometimes you get absolute disasters and sometimes you get directors who, who save things. I mean, X-Men First Class could have been an absolute disaster. Yeah. I still think it's amazing what Matthew Fawn did with that movie. I think he snatched victory that from the jaws of absolutely, defeat. Absolutely. That, that, that movie works as well as it does, that it's coherent, mm. <laughs> is astonishing given that they were filming in March. They were filming in like, like a month and a half before the movie came out. And against that weird. you've got, you know, The Mummy 2, where I think we all remember The Scorpion King yeah. wasn't ready. Wasn't and ready. And they rushed it for a release date and regretted it. And uh, looking at next year, Fast 7's been rush released in the cinemas they've lost their director the guy who's made the franchise as big as it is uh, they brought in James Wan he's very very good but doesn't have experience of movies this big you know why not just take a year I don't think people are chomping at the bit to see Fast 7 next year I, uh, maybe I'm wrong are I you? think the pressure yeah. comes from the other direction though, doesn't it it comes from the, the corporate it does but, you know, but at the same time it's good to see that someone at Universal has gone look that's hold off guys this is this is a huge movie for us this is enormous this could be I a, think we're being a quite, billion dollar franchise I think this is more this trouble in the state of Denmark and, and, and they're just something's wrong rather and yeah yeah. we it, don't we don't know the whole story is all I'm saying but no, it's Jurassic Park now on hold Okay, bear that in mind Phil Cat. I'm uh, this is just something that's kind of <clears throat> puzzled me really but there's news that Christopher McQuarrie who currently has a really really interesting career interview up on our website um has signed up to write and direct a remake of Cold War Thriller, almost entirely free of thrills, Ice Station <laughs> Zebra, um, which for me is probably one of the most boring films I've ever seen and is so uniquely of its time. It's an Alistair MacLean novel that has none of Guns of Navarone's David Nivenness um, or Daring Do. It's just, I just one of these films that you mentioned, Raise the Titanic. I'm also going to throw in Meet Joe Black, Out of Africa. The Malago 
beanfield war in terms of the just really dull yeah um i don't i'm sorry nothing against Robert redford who i love but those are just this is just a film that i i've seen a couple of times i can't remember anything about and i i think Christopher McCoy is someone that I think is is excellent and has is, you know incredibly gifted writer um, and director and it'd just be interesting to see why even more than what he's going to do with this. Um, if you don't know the story, it's about the Soviets and the Americans in the height of the Cold War racing to pick up some doohickey in the North Pole. There's submarines. It's got Ernest Borgnine with the worst Russian accent. He's probably the worst Soviet. Oh, I don't know. Sean submarine Connery? commander accent. Decided. Well, imagine, imagine, I think you've made a mistake. Imagine Ernest Borgnine attempted a Russian accent. True. God bless Sean, he didn't even bother. No, he didn't. That's true, he does attempt a Russian accent. Shale into history. He rolls, he rolls all his R's and he wars all his W's. I would have liked to have seen Which, as Montana. we established, is Polish. Wichta, wichta. Wichta, wichta. Diplomatic immunity. No, what? wait, wait. Let's, let's I thought we were just doing voices now. Let's just become the Tower of Babel in <laughs> so, here. So maybe this is a good thing because, you know, you shouldn't remake classics so much as you should remake films where there's room for improvement, right? Mm. Exactly. So potentially... There's a lot of room for improvement. And this is a good thing. You're right. So let's be positive. Um, I just think it's a strange one because Macquarie was sort of linked with the next Mission Impossible. Um, I think he still is, isn't he? He still is. But that one signed up for, by is the way. looking like a project that they want to funnel through as quickly as possible. Unsurprisingly, the last one was a big hit. Yeah, but um, Cruz is just about to do Man from Uncle. I mean, people are being cast in that even yeah. as we speak. Cruz is busy, so maybe this is one. I don't know what are we going to do about it. Could be interesting. Could be a sub submarine thriller. I just it's so cold warry. I can't imagine if it's going to be a period piece. They're going to update the story. I don't know. All right. It's a rubbish news story. This isn't it. Let's it's not. It's, it's, I'm a big fan of Chris McQuarrie's, and I think uh, yes. I'm, I'm intrigued by this. I'm I'm slightly disappointed that there doesn't seem to be uh, any appetite for a, a Jack Reacher sequel. I know people I'm have not. their opinions about Tom Cruise as, as Jack Reacher, but I would have loved to have seen what those guys could have done with. An adaptation of another one of the books. If if we're only get, going to get one Jack Reacher novel uh, adapted, it seems a bit of a shame to me that we're probably going to wait 10, 12, 15 years for that character to be rebooted on the big screen. That's, that's a shame. Um, but yeah. Oh. Uh, poor old Jack. Uh, he'll live. Oh, yeah. He always yeah. lives. Yeah. Uh, Helen. I bring you a girly news roundup. Oh. Yep. So. <laughs> So first of all, uh, Richard Madden of Game of Thrones, a.k.a. the King in the North, a.k.a. Rob Stark, Mm -hmm. has signed on to play the prince. um, Possibly charming, (laughs) possibly not. Stop simpering, Ali. But it's what? And of course, Kenneth Branagh directing with... uh, uh, Kate Blanchett, I think, is the evil stepmother. So that that's shaping up, I think, rather well. That should be quite interesting. Um, in other Lily news, AKA, uh, but this time it's Lily Collins. Uh, Lily Collins and Jamie Campbell Boyer have signed on for the sequel to The Mortal Instruments, City of Bones. Now that comes out this August. They've already signed up for the sequel, which is called City of Ashes, which shows some kind of confidence in the the, the film. Uh, the books are quite entertaining so uh, and have sold very well so I guess mm. they're planning that as, a, as the next big franchise there's an elephant's graveyard in Hollywood of next Twilight and are. next Harry Potter's yeah. and whatnot this seems to be this is very much confident perhaps so especially when I combine it with the news that uh, Divergent is in production that's got Shailene Woody in the lead role as Triss um, and they've already got a writer going on the sequel to that, which is called Insurgent, and that's going to be Jane Goddard's Brian Duffield. Now, both of these, I've read both these these series. Um, the Mortal Instruments are quite 
entertaining. Uh, they're sort of in the in the sort of cross area between, I guess, Twilight and Harry Potter. Um, in that they have lots of magic, but also a bit of romance in there. Um, quite good mythology, could be really interesting, could be a bit rubs. It's hard to tell right now. Uh, Divergent and Insurgent, the big problem for me is buying into the initial concept, which is that um, humanity, after some kind of apocalypse, has been divided into f- factions based on uh, ideal characteristics. So th- there's the brave faction, the smart faction, the uh, compassionate faction. And in the first book especially... They give you no reason why that would possibly happen. Can now, someone be brave, smart, and compassionate? Well, you can, yes, but then, they can, but then you're divergent, you see, and you're a threat to the establishment, uh, which is the problem. And yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. There's, as you read the second book, it becomes clear that there's maybe some kind of weirdness going on behind the scenes, and that's what has created this very artificial situation. But that isn't clear at the beginning, which makes it, for me, a slightly tough sell. So it's going to be interesting to see how they handle that. But in any case, it could be a good film, and, and I hope that it will be. Okay. Stop frowning, Chris. Okay. Could end up well. Great. Thanks for that, Helen. <laughs> um, well done, movie news. Well done, Hollywood. Now, there's no mistake in the big release of this week, though. It's J.J. Uh, Abrams' space sequel, Star Trek Into Darkness, in which Kirk, Spock and co. face off against Benedict Cumberbatch's uber-bastard John Harrison. Earth will fall, promised the posters, but hopefully it'll be able to get back up again. The film was released here yesterday, and we're sure lots of you have seen it already and are expecting, nay, demanding... A regular Empire Podcast spoiler special. All in good time. All in good time. In fact, you're going to get two. The first one, which will see four of us blabbing away about the movie, including extraordinary geekiness from James Dyer, uh, will be up on Monday. Ali, is that correct? You're looking at me, interestingly, with uh, rather devilish handsomeness, I must say, but uh, Monday? Monday? Monday's fine, yeah, Yeah, sure. Monday? Good. It was a compliment. You call yeah. him devilishly handsome, he'll do anything for yeah, you. Uh, the second one, Sees us grilling Bob Orsi, Damon Lindelof, Alex Kurtzman and Brian Burke, the movie's writers and producers, for all sorts of juicy scoopage on all the movie's many twists and turns. But in order to let everyone, and I mean everyone, including our cousins in the United States, who once again get this movie behind us... Makes <laughs> 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 a change! Oh, dear God. Uh, anyway, that won't be up until about May 24th or so. Just get everyone a chance to come to terms with the revelations... Or not. Movie. Or not. Who knows? Of course, if you wanted to go to the IMDb, one of those revelations is already up there, so don't do that, unless, of course, you're weird. Uh, in the meantime, though, here are the non-spoiler quadrants of our interviews. See? Yeah, quadrants. Yeah, that's yeah, very like good. That. Yeah, well done. Uh, of our interviews with Messrs Orsi, Lindelof, Kurtzman and Burke. They're in pairs. It's uh, Brian Burke and Damon Lindelof and then Roberta Orsi and Alex Kurtzman when they so graciously dropped by our pod booth last week. I think you'll find the results... <laughs> Engaging. Wrong generation. Oh, damn it. Make it so? Also. Oh, shit. Uh, we are delighted to be joined in the pop booth by Brian Burke and Damon Lindelof, producer and producer writer of Star Trek Into Darkness. Welcome, gents. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Hello. It's impressive. Did you Thanks. drop it down an octave just I, for extra seconds? That is drop. Yeah. I just, I, if I did that, you would start thinking that I was Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> uh, I don't want to steal his thunder. Uh, Bob Barcia in the uh, press conference we, we just did was talking about freedom. I guess with the first movie, you you deliberately freed yourselves up to go in any direction with this movie. But that, that must have presented its own headaches as well when you sat down to, to, to come up with a story for this one. I never heard it articulated in quite the way that Bob did, where freedom is a horrible thing. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a, a, a pitch for dictatorship, I think. But it's but it's true. I mean, I do. The, he was right in terms of the the, the 
the first movie had incredible challenges to it, but one of the things we all committed to very quickly was that it was going to be an origin story, and we were going to essentially do parallel origin stories between Kirk and Spock, and ultimately that led us to you know these guys, these two guys meeting and the the crew falling into place around them. The challenges became how do we weave that into the existing canon, but tell the audience we're willing to completely and totally aberrate from existing canon and go our own way, which will be exciting for everyone. That was a challenge. But this time around, I think that idea of, okay, we did that the first time. Now we are free to do whatever we want. Should, you know, is there a gravity, you know, should we honor the original Trek? Should we do a, a, our own spin on a Trek story from, you know, from the original series or can we go completely our own way? Yeah. And then so that conversation was happening simultaneous to how are these characters going to evolve? Because even when in the original series, when we meet Kirk and Spock, those guys have been, they're in the midst of the five-year mission. So that that whole phase of the courtship and falling in love, getting to know each other hadn't been done yet. And so we had to kind of say, what's the what's the best series of, uh, of adventures that these guys can go on to, to, to sort of further express that idea? And it was difficult and tricky. Brian, you were uh, you were saying when, when I talked to everybody in, in December that you were the guy who didn't know anything about Star Trek, especially when you not were even, putting together not, the even not even just Star Trek, just about <laughs> just in general. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, having having made the first film, have you have you kind of tried to kind of preserve that innocence so you'd still be able to play the same role this time around? Um, He's now seen the first film. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. just, oh, spoiler. Just, yeah, yeah, for the record. Um, I, I I definitely haven't gone back and watched the entire sure. uh, um, Star Trek. Uh, library um I, I have gone back and watched a lot of the original series and um but i definitely still uh play the role of of um not understanding things right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh um and also pertaining to star trek and pretend, yeah true <laughs> um i mean there were there were interesting things like i just remember going through this process on, on this script and Alex, Bob, and Damon would be talking in the corner and pitching something, and I'd be, I'd raise my hand and say, "I don't, I don't understand what we're talking about." And then they, they put it into layman terms for me to understand right. it. Uh, the, the flip of that is, there would be a lot of times where they'd be going through and having similar conversations, where they'd be laughing, and I raise my hand, and I said, "I don't know what you're talking about," and they'd say, "It's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's for Star Trek fans." So um, there, there was definitely a, a, a conscious effort to make a film that everybody uh, could go see. Um, and simultaneously perpetually giving nods to real Star Trek fans. There were four years between the first Star Trek and, and this movie, and generally speaking in terms of sequels uh, these days, that's quite a long time. Um, why did it take so long to get the gang back together? I, I guess schedules are a huge part of it, but... I, th I think that's what it was first and foremost. Uh, ultimately, we started talking uh, creatively about the second movie while we were writing the first one and and definitely our desire to, to, to do it but I think that by time you know May of 2009 rolled around I still had two seasons of Lost to do one mm -hmm. whole season to write and produce from my end and JJ was just start of started writing Super 8 mm. I think at around the time that yeah. right after Trek came out so there was a there was an understanding that at least a year would go by uh, before we would be available and then Bob and Alex obviously have their entire empire and, and Brian is uh, producing and running a company uh, at Bad Robot mm. so I think that kind of right out of the gate we all said we're not even really going to be able to start talking engaging on on Trek 2 if they want to make it if this movie does well until late 2010 until summer 2010 which is kind of exactly what happened I mean yeah. and and then it just took a long time to uh, execute 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the more often than not, the sequels come, you know, every two years, yeah. and which we're not opposed to, but we also wanted to make sure that we weren't just rushing to do a sequel to do a sequel. And uh, the, how often do you see the second film um, after being introduced and, and, and liking the first one, and then it's like, oh, what happened? Uh, yeah, so yeah. we just wanted to make sure as best as we could that we weren't just doing it for the sake of doing it. And what about um, dealing with the, I, I guess, the increased importance of the actors and the cast this time around? Because the first time around, I guess, as writers and producers and JJ is the director, what you say goes. But in the interim, Chris has become a big star. Does that then increase, and, for example? And an alcoholic. And yeah. a massive alcoholic. <laughs> he was yeah. sort of an alcoholic before. But now, <laughs> now, he's, now he's... Was really Star Trek the real reason when he yeah, became think, an alcoholic? That was the it. Two that things was are it. directly related. That tipped him over? Yeah, okay. Exactly. Um, but, for example, Chris, Zoe, you know, huge, huge stars now. Do they have increased input into what happens to the characters? Or can you just say, this is what happens to Kirk, this is what happens to Uhura? I, I think, you know... This is the politic answer that you're supposed to say, but in our case, it also happens to be the truth, which is that um, Chris, uh, the actors have always had a very um, um, open and honest dialogue with us, the storytellers, about these characters. Because, you know, Chris Pine's job or Zach Quino's job or Zoe Saldana's job is to basically, they worry about Kirk, Spock, and Uhura, respectively. We have to worry about all these other things. And sometimes we put the characters in service of the story and they need to have greater clarity as to what it is that we're looking for. Um, You know, uh, Carl Urban, for example, He's 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 not just interested in playing Bones, but he's about as big of a Trekkie or Trekker. Uh, he's right up there on the Orsi level. So it, in terms of input, I think it's an ongoing uh, collaboration and dialogue that we have with the actors that they felt a lot more comfortable having the second time around because they've established their work in the first one. So, you know, the set is always a place because of, I think, all of our TV backgrounds, but particularly JJ's because he's directing it, where, you know, where kind of every opinion is welcome. But at the end mm-hmm. of the day, we're all in service of the way that JJ sees it and understanding yeah. what it is that he wants to do. But all jokes aside, I think that the, the there's it's it's a pretty egoless set. And because Trek is, is really uh, ensemble-based, and you can talk to Alice and Benedict about this because they they joined up up with the cast there's just like there's no number one on the call sheet there's no like there's no demand for more attention there's no prima yeah. donnas everybody shows up to to, wor- to work hard and have fun and uh, and I think that all trickles down from our director well the interesting thing is uh, again I noticed that the cast are listed in alphabetical order which is so unusual for a film of, of this size uh, I mean we do that with a lot of our ensembles because yeah. uh, you know Lost was yeah was that way as JJ's well. just a big fan of alphabetical order because it's hard to beat Abrams you know it's like it's right up there you'd have to have like yeah. Aronson that's why I slipped yeah, yeah. in as his partner <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, but uh, no yeah I, it's exactly what Damon said I mean it really is you know there, there's opinions come from all over the place yeah. and uh, ideas come from all over the place and it, what um, a week before we started shooting, when JJ started rehearsals and all the writers, excuse me, all the actors got together and they started talking, they they really started talking about their characters and what was there. And uh, my recollection was that the actors were talking to JJ about who who they were and particularly mm-hmm. who they were in this film. And then there was a big powwow with uh, you guys and JJ, and there was like this one last draft that came in that you could tangibly feel all the characters like really come to life in a way where the the actors were doing an input in a way that only only they could live with yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, um, 
and it was all there like in the original script but it, 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 it's it's hard to explain but it was like this weird thing where suddenly you, you all the voices alive. yeah came yeah. alive wow. okay. I mean it, it, I was going to ask it because I think everybody gets a really at least one really cool moment in this film and uh, you know they, they were talking about it again on set just saying this is this is great everybody feels like they have something to do was that I mean was that was there anybody who gave you difficulty finding something cool finding that moment finding that that kind of role for them the real the real challenge is is giving them only one and making <laughs> and making yeah. it count because they're uh, Chris and I were talking about this earlier I think that the idea of you know there's this um, there's this grand stew that is the movie and you're just you've got all these great ingredients yeah and you just you you know, you've got the salt over here, and you're. And let's just say that the the salt is Sulu. You know, and you're just like, I just want to throw in handfuls of this stuff. You know, <laughs> um, and uh, and and the reality is, is like, in and of itself, it's delicious. But you know, it's in service of the stew. So you say like, okay, so if we get one moment really with Sulu in this entire movie, you know, what's it going to be? What do we want to say about that character? What trajectory do we want to put him on? Mm. Which other characters is he interacting with? And they're just, you know pages and pages and pages of stuff we wrote for all these guys for Bones for Sulu for Chekhov especially who I think Anton you know got you know short shrifted this movie he's where, so much fun yeah, when he, he is there though, yeah I mean. he's amazing and like and you essentially say like there were there were story beats for example I think Scotty got a lot more to do in Into Darkness mm -hmm. because it, what what his character was playing was really relevant to the plot yeah. what he had to say um, that he became sort of this um Put he was pushing back against Kirk in a, in a way, and and so that it, it forced him to be much more front and center than he was in the first movie, where we didn't even meet up with Scotty until probably an hour or hour and ten minutes into the movie. Yeah, here he's here. So, but I do watch the movie, and every time I see Anton, I go like, God, we really just should have done a little bit more of a checkoff, or you know, or Zoe, just like, oh God, there should have been a scene between. Uh, like just a brief scene between Carol and Uhura, you know, where where they they're they're talking to each other. They exchange a couple lines of dialogue okay, about yeah. Kirk. It's like that's a real like, missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Even before you guys started writing it, and we would have our our dream conversations, you would I don't know if you even remember, like you would pitch um, specific scenes you wanted to do. Sure, and it's just it's, they in, were scenes the, we wanted to see exactly. And then obviously in the in the land of getting it into 120 yeah. pages. It'll be in the next film. <laughs> yeah, and especially once you bring Benedict in, that character has such an immense gravity to him because he's the villain yeah. in a way that I think that the the de design of the first movie, Nero, as wonderful as Eric Bana was, he was just a device by which to bring everybody together yeah. and and exercise this kind of time travel reset. Um, uh, it's an entirely different story this time. So from the moment that you see Benedict on camera, you're like, I'll just see that movie, you know? <laughs> um, and so you want to be in service of, of him as well. We are delighted to be joined in the pub booth by uh, Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi, uh, co-writers and producers of Star Trek Into Darkness. Welcome, gents. Oh, thank you for having nice us. Nice to be here. Uh, so, uh, congratulations on the film. I mean, it must be nice to be in London having, after having blown half of it up in the movie. <laughs> Was it, why London in particular? Uh, you guys just seem ripe for, <laughs> for a spanking. Yeah. 
London's well, getting that, it this year. That yeah. revolutionary yeah. war is still running. <laughs> exactly. Right now, yeah. So we hold, still very sensitive about long-term grudges in, <laughs> yeah. in the United States. Uh, it's amazing to be in London. First of all, the weather is unbelievable. I've never been here with this like. No, no, I, I've lived here for 10 years. I've never seen it. Yeah, no, I, I'm moving here actually now is what we're going to do. <laughs> uh, no, it's wonderful. Uh, why London? Gosh, I don't know. I think maybe because, uh, uh, you know, uh, Harrison, uh, first of all, obviously the Federation is about, you know, it's, it's a global situation. Um, and uh, I, I think the idea that uh, the carnage that he, uh, uh, that he rakes, Reeks, is that the word I'm looking for? Reeks, uh, yeah. Is global. Sounds uh, good. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, it was important to us because uh, at the end of the day, it, it, you know, Roddenberry's vision was of a of a, a kind of a global community, mm-hmm. and uh, so we felt like uh, we didn't want to just stay domestic. Yeah, it can't just be of... San Francisco every week, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it was it, did, was it also in a way to ground Harrison as a as a Brit, or did that happen once you cast Benedict in, in a weird way? You know what we were even before we cast Benedict, we always thought of. Uh, making it international and sort of London as a as a as a place that uh, represents civilization and having civilization be intruded upon by sort of this unspeakable terrible thing. So even before Benedict, we always imagined that you'd never seen London in Star Trek mm. and you'd never seen sort of the rest of the world. So it's always, like I said, been San Francisco or mm. or the states. And again, as Alex was saying, the idea of making it international. And making it global uh, was part of the fun. So that was in the script even before Benedict. But now the nice benefit is here we are celebrating Benedict, who is so great in the movie. And it's nice to be in his home country to do it. Mm. I have to ask a very quick question. This is not, I don't think, a spoiler. But we see uh, early on in the film someone going into the royal children's infirmary. Mm. Does this mean the royal family survived into uh, Federation time? You can answer that better. Of course they did, right? You know they did. It's a tradition. They're not going anywhere. Why do you hate Britain? Well, I'm, I'm Northern Irish, you see, so we, we all I see. Well, that's a, yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's a, it's a long, it's a long debate we've had. There. <laughs> <laughs> we could be here all day if we start cut, talking about cut, this. Cut, cut, yeah. <laughs> cut. So uh, in, in, the, in the grand future of, of Star Trek, is the Queen robotic now? Is have you, Did you think about that? <laughs> or, or did you just stop at Royal Is the Queen robotic? Actually, yeah. Robo-Queen, perhaps, I'm just guessing. Let's, uh, I'll turn that to a serious answer, which is Roddenberry, I think, always imagined humanity surviving, and that's why in his vision mm. of it, you never saw a whole lot of machines doing people's work. He, mm. he, he intended to extend humanity far into the future. However, the queen is a robot in the future. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was breaking the story of this movie quite a, a difficult one for you guys. Uh, Damon was saying that you pretty much started talking about it while working on the first movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took a long time um, because it, we... It took. I think there were a lot of phases to it. You know, the first was obviously when you're putting a movie together, you you end up having ideas that you don't use, yeah. and so we we had a stockpile of those. But then, <laughs> once the movie was received by the world and and you know, mercifully was received positively, I, I think we wanted the time uh, and the distance to to have some objectivity to really think about what we wanted to do next. And uh, learn from the lessons of the first movie, about both what we thought worked and what we thought worked less well, and what threads we thought were left over. So we wanted to take the time, really, to really, you know, get in there and 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 consider this. Also, the frankly, the expectations were low on the first movie, and I think mm-hmm. people were very happy and very surprised, which was it, it, wonderful that we got there, but terrifying as well because it's suddenly the expectations have been very high, and so we felt like, hey, you know what? We can't just rush into this. Like we owe it to the fans, we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to Star Trek to really give it the the thought it deserves, and and hopefully people feel that it was worth it. What did you think worked less well in the first movie? 
Well, Bob's name was ahead of mine in the first movie, <laughs> and that worked less well for me. That doesn't um, work alphabetically. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> he did get half the money, though. <laughs> we'll point that out. You know, uh, the first movie is about them coming together, so uh, there's there's a, a joy in spending the time and meeting all these people. On the other hand, the second movie immediately gets to get into the adventure, mm. and so those are nothing less well necessarily, just right. two different kinds of storytelling. Yeah. Um, and as Alex was saying, the, the challenge was that we had, you know, in the first movie, we felt like there was only sort of one way to do it, to honor Star Trek and then free yourself from the continuity. In this movie, we could do anything, mm-hmm. and that's terrifying. You know, it's easy to to think that just because people like the first movie, or be, it, it's easy to get lazy after success. And the trick was not to get lazy and to not assume that people are going to love the second movie just because they like the first one or because they like Star Trek. Each movie has to stand on its own. And a sequel is sort of a, a sandpit, a, a trap, mm. if you don't just treat it as a movie. And so we had to take the time to treat it as a movie. And you, I mean, you have the advantage here of, of having a, a great villain to to really challenge the cast mm-hmm. and make sure that you know, make sure keep them on their toes, both as characters on screen, but also as you know, as as a movie structuring exercise as, as screenwriters yourselves. Well, I, I think you know, we we tend to feel that all really great sequels are about your villain. You know, the first movie um, uh, 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 that tends to be, you know, in a franchise, very often you don't really remember the villain. What you remember is how the hero became the hero or how the heroes came together um, and became a unit. And that's always the take home. But the second movie tends to be about the bad guy because what you want to do is put your heroes through remarkable challenges that force them to evolve to a new place. And usually that requires somebody, you know, who really pushes them against the wall there's an old adage in screenwriting which is that your hero is only as good as your villain and I I think that is uniquely true And what better place to start the the week's review section than with Star Trek Into Darkness one of the summer's most eagerly awaited sequels so what do we make of Team JJ's second stab at Kirk and Spock and Bones and Scotty and company well um, I would say we liked it first of all um, yep. it's it's very fun incredibly pacey I mean it, it starts and really does not let up at any point during the film uh, just just races along at breakneck speed as does the Enterprise um, and <laughs> and its crew at various points in various manners um, and uh, and yeah incredible action sequences which really bodes well for whatever it is that JJ does next I wonder what that could be <laughs> um, so yeah it's it's uh, good performances again you know Chris Pine as Kirk is kind of growing into his role as captain uh, trying to learn I guess responsibility kids um, as well as just the swagger of being captain of the Enterprise um, and he's still got a little bit of a a little bit of headbutting going on with, with Spock with Zachary Quinto's Spock um, but they are, you know there is a lot of mutual love and a mutual respect there as well so it's kind of it's a headbutting from, from a place of love mm. I think it's fair to say and what's great about this film as well is that everybody in the cast gets something to do um, Simon Pegg Scotty is kind of Kirk's conscience really at one point in the story you know uh, Bones uh, Carl Urban is once again you know the kind of both the comic relief and I think he's probably the most broadly comic character this time in the script rather than maybe Scotty last time yeah. um, and and also the you know the guy who's kind of the audience in many ways asking for explanation when things get too technical which is always uh, always pleasant to see but he also gets to do some actual doctoring this time which is a bonus um, and Yuhura for me was one of the the most kind of pumped up uh, roles this time around she actually gets to show off the, the fact that she is a bit of a badass and also her Klingon language skills yes there are some Klingons I won't say too much about does that does she know the word for stop mom and shoot <laughs> I bet she does you know she's really expert in xenolinguistics 
I'm sure so. Dodana is listening to the podcast. Uh, so if you do know the Klingon for stop, mom or shoot, then by all means do email us or just call me. Just please call me. Oh God, I'm telling your wife. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's honestly it's it's really. I mean, in terms of the adventure stakes, in terms of the action stakes, this one really has it all. And I think uh, you know, there's an echo of the first movie's space jump, um, which is if yeah. anything faster and more furious. Um, <laughs> to name another sequel of the summer, um, and it's uh, you know there's some great kind of f- fist fights as well. Mm. There's some great chase scenes. There's kind of a bit of everything. There's a bit of um, in warp speed. There's a there's a chase at warp speed, which is like nothing I've ever seen before in Star Trek, um, and and gives it a much kind of bigger feel and a bigger canvas than we've maybe ever had before. Yeah, it's fun. It's a very a very fun movie. It's a, it's been a very good summer for sequels thus far. Uh, yeah. Iron Man three is great. Star Trek Into Darkness. I don't think quite hits the heights of the of the first J.J. Uh, Abrams movie I would uh, agree weirdly enough though I mean I, st- I think it still continues the run of even number Star Trek's being very very good uh, I just think that Star Trek which was Star Trek 11 mm. kind of breaks the rule in a way I think that it's a slight it's a slight downturn but it's still very very enjoyable yeah I, w- I would agree I don't think it's as good as, as the 2009 film quite so much because possibly because of all this action and because of all this adventure and these chases you don't get to focus quite as much on the character there isn't there's moments of downtime in the same way that there were in the first one and also I don't think it's quite as cleverly plotted um, you know you have a great time when you're watching it but when you think about it afterwards it, it doesn't hang together that brilliantly yeah. um, but you know you will have a good time when you're watching it I think I really enjoyed watching this on the IMAX screen. Uh, I went to go and see it up in Swiss Cottage. And it was one of those ones where you're glad you pay the extra money to go and see it in the bigger venue because I got goosebumps. I'm absolutely loving this sensation when you first see the Enterprise go into warp and then the titles come up and then that great theme hits you right in the face. Yeah, Michael Giacchino's stuff is great. And then the warp trails just shoot out in front of you and you're like, yes, this is good. (laughs) Is there enough for the hardcore sci-fi Star Trek fan? If anything, I don't think this is quite nerdy enough. And maybe that's me being a nerd. It it stays very close to the best known Star Trek beats, I think, and and stuff that's been established in the first film. Um, That said, there's nothing wrong with, with what it does talk about. Um, And, uh, and it does so very well. So yeah, it seems like as a non, non long term Trekker, but mm. <clears throat> he's moved it down and right slightly in the sense that it's not in the cerebral, not as cerebral as the original Star Trek. No, it's not. It's and not more of an action. Yeah. yeah, it's very much more of an action movie. I would Are agree. you guys aware of what's generally considered the difference between nerd and geek? Generally, geeky is more forbidden planet. Nerdy is more very complicated thought processes. Let's really analyze this. You know. That's the general thing. I would say this is more on the geeky side than on the nerdy side. I felt there were plenty of hat tips to all previous, towards previous Star Trek stuff. I, I just don't think there are. I thought there were... For me, as a non-Star Trek fan, are, I thought yeah. there were quite a few. Uh, yeah, well, we, it's tricky because there's a lot about this movie that we want to talk about in terms of spoilers. We can't, obviously, so do check out the spoiler special. But yeah, there, there are a few references that, that we can't really talk about sadly. Uh, but Benedict Cumberbatch is the big bad guy of this one. He's been much ballyhooed. Uh, obviously we, we love him. Uh, he is Sherlock. Uh, he's one of our finest actors. Uh, so how is he in this one and, and how does John Harrison pan out? What is What does he want? What's his story? What's his beef? <laughs> Where do you begin? <laughs> Why don't you leave that for the spoiler? 
we can't. Well, no, we, we have, have to. We have, we have to, to say about. something about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think we were all expecting Benedict Cumberbatch to kind of bring the intellectual as a villain because he obviously does that so brilliantly in Sherlock and mm. and frankly most of his work today, even going back to stuff like Starter for Ten, you know, he he gives good kind of sneery intellectualism. Um, what I think weren't necessarily expecting was him for him to be quite as hands on and, and quite violent as he is because he is a really he's a really tough tough character physically mm. as well as as kind of mentally if you will so so that was good just because it amped up the stakes that little bit higher and made him a bit more of a a fit for for Kirk for Spock for for the Enterprise crew you know it made him a, that little bit more of a threat which I thought was good um, yeah his his motives are a little opaque at times um, but I think that's partly through his own devices because he doesn't want you to exactly know what's going on he wants to kind of keep several layers of, of motive hidden at any one time which i think is is always a good thing because it keeps the twists and turns coming mm-hmm. that's the uh that's the hope anyway that's the hope he's not just silver he's like silver he's just kind of freestyling his way through through stuff uh, there's a couple <laughs> of nice interesting wrinkles i don't think it's too much of a spoiler to reveal that uh, at certain points john harrison is not necessarily the antagonist that we might think he is going into the movie there's some nice little revelations and twists and turns and the, the way that evolves is quite fun throughout the film so uh, uh and i like those scenes i like those scenes with, with him and uh and chris chris pine uh which which is uh which is fun it's, it's it's just it's a fun film it's a fun ride i think there are some flaws we'll get into it more heavily i guess in the uh, spoiler special but we gave it four stars and i think deservedly so and if this is jj's last star trek movie he's going out on a on a very very nice high fair enough Fair enough. Uh, okay, next up, there will be mud. <laughs> a review of mud, that is. Uh, what are our thoughts on this one? Jeff Nichols' movie, Matthew well, McConaughey, obviously. Well, people probably got a sense, listeners probably got a sense of the fact that we really liked it from the interview with, with Jeff Nichols. Um, it is a really likable, easy-to-enjoy movie, this. And um, I think what he's done that's that's clever is he's updated the Mark Twain, something that's quite sort of elemental in America to a modern setting, but it has a timeless quality as well. It's basically kind of a Huckleberry Finn type story with these two kids who encounter this sort of mysterious, possibly ex-convict, possibly fugitive character played by Matthew McConaughey on an island in the middle of the slow-flowing Mississippi River. It's like kind of the the pulsing vein that runs through America and has this real sense of the timelessness of this place and it's beautifully shot the performances are fantastic without giving too much it's not a story that lends itself to too much kind of explanation necessarily I think I would recommend people just go along and, 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 and watch it and absorb it because it's one of those films that you kind of soak up um, the, the dynamic between the, the two kids um, played brilliantly by Ty Sheridan and Jacob Laughlin and Matthew McConaughey's Neckbone who's this kind of water rat character it is is so beautifully judged and there's other things going on there's Reese Witherspoon's character who has a connection a romantic connection with Neckbone um, the police are after him there's interesting other characters and, and they're all fleshed out enough so that you feel very invested in them and, and it's a story basically built on its characters and built on its setting very strongly um, there are flaws I would say the ending I didn't feel that the ending it particularly needed the ending it had necessarily um, but it's as I say it's just a really really enjoyable um, pastoral kind of story that has a real timeless quality and, and Jeff Nichols who you know if you've seen Shotgun Stories his first film which he shot on a shoestring um, with uh, Michael Shannon obviously who's plays a smaller role in this one Take Shelter probably their best together um he's versatile and those terence malick 
comparisons are pretty invidious but I think there's there's something in them in, in the sense that he's a filmmaker with genuine talent and genuine quality and he's going to go on to do really interesting things um, thankfully he's a lot more prolific than, than Malik at this point in his career um, so a big recommendation from us four stars and it continues the run of Matthew McConaughey in good movies shock yeah well I think McConaughey's been he's been good in you know f- he was in Ed TV, wasn't he? And and oh, he's been good and, before. And but there's a it, there's been a solid run the yeah. last couple of years. You know, Bernie, yeah. Magic Mike, obviously. You know, Killer Joe. Killer Joe. You know, he's been he's been kind of on a roll basically. Yeah, um, culminating, of course, in being cast as the lead in Chris Nolan's Interstellar. There you go. That's right. I think there's a there's a sort of st- the story with him is that it was all rom coms and it was all him with his top off he still gets his top off in this movie so don't be alarmed it hasn't changed we haven't moved too far away from Heartland McConaughey but you know you're right and maybe it's because he's reaching that age which becomes where actors get really interesting roles you know the looks perhaps start to start to take a bit more of a you know they tell more stories should we say it's less than just pretty boy and um, I think Leonardo DiCaprio is going to benefit from that in in the years ahead as well Um, so yeah he's very very good so that is Mud, to which we gave four stars. And uh, speaking of rom-coms, the next movie is a Kate Hudson film, but don't worry, it's not exactly what you might think. Uh, it's Mira Nair's The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which is a thought-provoking drama starring the excellent Riz Ahmed, um, who's, I think, fantastic. He was in Four Lions, obviously, as a Pakistani Princeton grad whose conscience and worldview are irrevocably changed following 9-11. Also stars uh, Liev Schreiber and Kiefer Sutherland. So what are our thoughts on this one, Philip? Solid. Good, thank you. Thought-provoking. <laughs> Do you want more? I've got a lot of adjectives. Yeah, good. Cerebral. Throw them at me. Good, yes. Um, well, I've had a lot of adjectives. I have three. Oh, well, three's more than I have. Well acted. Riz, you're right. Riz, Riz Ahmed is um, he's very good. He's the core of the film. Kate Hudson, we're talking about Matthew McConaughey, his old co-star. She's now, you know, got some interesting stuff. This is so unlike Kate Hudson um, that we're kind of used to. She's a little kind of here, there and everywhere, emotionally speaking. And she mm-hmm. falls in with with Riz Ahmed, who's this Wall Street gun whose life is just thrown into turmoil by 9-11. And it's an interesting angle on a story that's been told in lots of different ways from a different perspective. Here's a Muslim guy, a lot of talent, you know, an insider in Wall Street, and yet suddenly he's basically Shunned, being asked to pick sides. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's a, an element of mystery and an element of thriller in the sense that you know, it's the framing devices. There's been a terrorist attack. He's back in Pakistan. Did he do it? Where's he gone? So it starts with that, loops back to the beginning, and then takes you on the journey. And mm. you have to kind of try and figure out whether that's where the journey ended, mm. or whether that's a bit of a curveball. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we mentioned Bizarman. I mean, he's. I think he's one of our brightest talents in many, many ways. It's good to see him getting bigger roles now in 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 bigger films. Absolutely, he's 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 very gifted, and I think you're right. In four four lions, like different kind of slant on the yeah post nine eleven world. No, but, but he holds that movie together. I mean, everyone else has been such a preposterous loon in that film, and he really gives it its, its well, weight. Along with uh, um, along with Kaivan Novak, who's just heartbreaking yeah. in that film. Well, they're all good, but he mm. gets the he gets the emotional scenes, doesn't he? He gets the scenes with the wife that mm. ground the film in something relatable. It need it needs, and uh, so he's a key key to that film working and likewise here uh, we gave this three stars 
Do you concur? Uh, I concur. You concur? I do. Excellent. Uh, we're moving on then. Uh, last but not least is Deadfall, a snowbound thriller in which Eric Bana and Olivia Wilde's brother and sister criminals find their perfect getaway hemmed in on all sides by cops, family discord, and tons and tons of the white stuff. Snow, that is. Uh, thoughts on this one? Sorry, everybody. It's me again. Hey, Phil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've watched so many movies. I've you been flying around. This one is um, solid again. It's a thriller. It's an interesting kind of snowy noir um, Fargo-y, I guess you could say, in terms of its setting. And it's directed by Stefan Rosowitzki. Apologies, Stefan. Yes. My surname is pretty tough too. And (laughs) he directed the Oscar-winning best foreign film, The Counterfeiters, which, if you haven't seen, you should. It's really terrific. Um, Kind of almost like a black morality play set in the the concentration camp. And this is nowhere near as good as that. But it does have things to recommend it. It has an interesting performance by Olivia Wilde um, as the sister to Eric Banner's Heistmeister. And uh, the two of them, are, uh, it goes wrong, you know, as these things tend to. It's not Ocean's Eleven. The two of them reunite at the uh, at the parents' house of a guy that, that Olivia Wilde's character falls in with. There's all sorts of double-crossing and uh, thrills and spills along the way. As I say, the setting, some of the acting is better, perhaps, than, uh, the, than the story itself. Mm. Um, but it's an interesting take on the kind of noir thriller. Okay, uh, three stars for Deadfall, and also at this weekend worth mentioning is the uh, Somalian pirate hijack drama, not Captain Phillips, but uh, simply a hijacking. Borgen on a ship. Borgen on a ship, says Phil. It's very, very good. We give it four stars, and it's well worth your time if you can find it in cinemas this weekend. And that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Don't forget the Star Trek spoiler special number one next week, number two a couple weeks after that and next week our format changes ever so slightly because we'll be in the south of France won't well, we Ali? some of you will well yeah but you know someone's got to hold the fort well mm. Jess someone's got to look after the kids make sure they don't you know all horribly set themselves on fire yeah I know so why aren't we going with you to stop you setting yourselves on fire I've, I've, See what only, I did there? I've only burnt down one flat in Cannes I can't go to Cannes because I have to do a best man speech but if anyone out there has any good jokes can you please email them in okay yeah I don't know if that's a bit personal. Yeah, no, that's it's fine. A personal plea. That's fine. That's fine. Do we need to know more details about the the bride and groom, about your relationship with the Let groom? me find out who they are. Okay, <laughs> that's good. Uh, okay, so next week our format changes slightly because Ali and I will be in, in Cannes, uh, south of France. Uh, for the next two weeks, we'll be bringing you Cannes special podcasts from the Quasette with myself, Ali, and yes, at long, long last, there'll be a bit where it's Damon Wise. Uh, we'll be bringing you news, views, interviews with stars that are very much TBC but we're lining up some very exciting names I have to say uh, this lot Hello. left behind in sunny London yeah. will also be busy bringing you reviews of the likes of Fast 6 and Hangover Part 3 it's going to be like a mashup show we're going to yeah. start it in Cannes finish it in London it's going to be awesome it's international this is the Empire Podcast international edition it is it's going to be it's going to be well cool and I'm learning French for it as well so that's, that's ah going très bien that's going to be uh, that's going to uh, yeah uh, until then until next week it is Live Long and Prosper from Helen. Nanu, nanu. <laughs> it's Live Long and Prosper from Ali. Cobra! <laughs> it's Live Long and Prosper from Phil. I have been and always shall be your friend. Aww, oh, that's lovely, that's nice. isn't it? That's very, very nice. And of course, it's Live Long and Prosper from me. Helen, you have the calm. See you next week.